Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time. Tell me a story. Hey, folks. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Chuck Bozeski. Chuck is a professor of engineering at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. He also writes the blog, Empathy Guru. I cut sugar out of my diet. I discovered this whole alternate literature because I'm an exercise freak. I ride my bike 2,000 miles, 1,500 to 2,000 miles a year, and I was getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Yeah, so it's not about exercise. Weight, weight has very little to do with exercise. You should exercise for health, but it has nothing to do with weight. So, it's, so at any rate, he's a very interesting person because he's a window into you know the nutrition people or the people who rather have been betrayed by the nutrition community have had to kind of go through a wholesale revision of self-image on why they do what they do because all of a sudden everything they realize that they're in the simulation yep so so um on his on his twitter feed they were talking about how a couple of epidemiologists um that were kind of on the hardcore lockdown, blah, 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 especially when Ireland has no deaths for the last four months, they basically have no deaths from COVID. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the people were all saying, um, you know, they're all doing it for the money because they want to work on these pharma boards later. And the pharma, the pharma boards, the big pharma is going to find these people and going to give them the money. And I'm like, now slow down here. This is what these guys are doing you know, what the, the advocates in the, their National Health Service, whatever it's called, like NC, NHCP or whatever are doing, yeah. is emergent behavior. Yep. Because you don't start, you're a young man, well, you know, you don't start a career as a, 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 a PhD in epidemiology thinking, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going <laughs> to... These, corporate board. That's yeah, I'm going to get on a corporate board. There's going to be a pandemic here. <laughs> it's going to come. And and I'm going to get on that corporate board and I'm just going to make a ton of money. You know, <clears throat> it's totally preposterous. That's not yep. what happened. Right. Of course, what does happen, at least, you know, from my opinion, you are talking to me is you have these larger mimetic structures that drive behavior that create these kinds of things that then, of course, would make somebody like that individual attractive later. I mean, you may end up on a pharma board. I don't want to say that that's not the case. But the idea that that person was fundamentally evil and driven by money, is just it just doesn't match any narrative that you could construct that's believable, or at least a statistical narrative. Maybe there's right. one person who in graduate school, while they're in the lab, you know, <laughs> titrating this or mixing samples or running their simulations and seeing their thing. I know this is the path to that corporate board, you know, where they're going right. to $500,000 a year, you know, there's not many of them. I can tell you nope. that. And in fact, one of the interesting things is probably one of the main drivers behind the bad science in this whole COVID thing has been the fact that we don't pay epidemiologists enough. That's right. And so what happens is you attract people like I've, I've been the head of my entire faculty here at WSU. I mean, I've dealt, I've been in the academy for 33 years. You start attracting people who are more specialists. 
But what that also means is you attract more people that have OCD. <laughs> and you start also because if you want to be a successful faculty member and study the same thing, if you want to be a specialist, it means that you have to do the same thing. Yep. It, finer and finer scales forever. So you start attracting neurotypical people who are basically collapsed. Smaller and smaller. Smaller and smaller. And then, then the university itself doesn't create, like I'm this very interesting person. I've worked with a hundred different corporations. I run this thing, we call it, I called it the industrial design clinic, which when I coined the name, I had no idea what industrial design was. I just thought it was cool and I needed something to raise money with. Um, Cause I was raised kind of a poor boy and always thought about money. So, so I've worked with a hundred different companies. And so my interface with the outside world goes very, very broadly. I've been to 40 different countries. I speak five different languages, very mediocrely. It's like, where, how did this guy get here? You know, there's all the stuff that went into me not being a typical professor. And um, yeah. And so, but that doesn't exist. I mean, yep. I'm this weird, you know, space alien anachronism. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, it's super funny. So I've got my my brother here. I don't know if he's introduced himself, but he's a mechanical engineering student at North Carolina State University, which is right down the road from Duke, where you went and got your PhD. Uh, And and it's super. So I sent him your background and your blog. um, And it it was great. He was like, this is like no engineering professor I've ever seen. Yeah. No, but I'm not like any professor either. I mean, I'm like this outcast inside my own, like, you know, inside my own organization because of stuff like, so I've written quite a bit and I don't expect you to have read everything on my blog. I mean, what, let me just real quick tell you the story of the blog. That'd be the great. reason I started writing the blog was about, so about 10 years ago, I started figuring this out and, you know, I'm fond of saying every blind squirrel, you know, finds a nut every now and again. <laughs> And I managed to make this link between empathy and spiral dynamics. Super cool. Yeah. And that's huge because now all of a sudden it, you know, one of these things, you've ever seen those games, like where you put the, the, it's like connect Four or something. You put yeah. the, the things in the top and then all of a sudden everything lines up and it just drops out. Right. Yeah. So that's basically what happened with my brain. I mean, I basically figured this one thing out that basically the thing that we practiced more than anything else was relationships with humans, other humans, and actually dogs and other animals because sentience is sentience. And then, then all of a sudden, all this other stuff, just like, whoa, now I get it because our brains will do whatever we practice the most. And mostly yep. what we do is practice relating to other humans. And that's what we don't do in academia. And since we don't do it, then now all of a sudden we have this huge network of institutions that are responsible for curating knowledge for a society that can't get it. So, right. so I would send in papers and, and I thought they were good. I mean, and I've have a, I don't have a great long publication record, but the papers I've written are relatively well cited. And I was one of the people that figured out chaos and fractals. You know, I have a reputation, you know, and the papers would just immediately get rejected. So then I would send it, I would, I would call up the editor and I would say, why did the paper get rejected? I mean, it's okay. I don't care, you know. There's yeah. good here. And then they would summarily accept it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I started, you know, now all of a sudden I realize I'm in the simulation, right? Right. 
So I said, oh my goodness, I figured out this thing that, you know, if I get hit by a bus could die with me, you know, this set of ideas could literally die because nobody has really had these ideas. Oh, you know, I've, I have been very clever about assembling other stuff and pulling stuff from other people. It's not, nothing is ever one person. Okay. I mean, let's just, I want to be honest about that, of course. But so I just started writing everything down and then I started getting found by people like you, other people, like every now and again, like the famous person would find me. It's really weird. So, nice. so yeah, so it's there now. The, the, the body of work is there on the blog as far as how it worked. Now, you know, whether it gets extended, I hope I don't get hit by a bus. You know, I'm not going to die of COVID. I think I've already had it. Um, you know, I mean, in, anybody that works in a university and, and has contact with students has very, very likely already had COVID because it all came on hard in, March and April of last year when yep. we shut down. So, so yeah, so that's the history behind the blog. So, so, you know, so what you see is like people say, who'd you write the blog for? And I said, I wrote the blog basically as a time capsule, Super but cool. I also wrote the blog so that there is for people who can figure it out, there is a meta strategy for how larger collective networks make maps. And that's really what it is. How do people really think and what scales do they operate on so that they will plan whatever their future is or not plan, really? Got I mean, it. We see a lot too, right? We see a lot of not plan. And how does that work? And it started there that all this stuff kind of got generated. So, all right, that's me being me babbling a little bit. So what can I, what do you, what do you guys want to do? Nice to meet you all. There's three of you, it's your brother. And this is a and this is my dad. He's a retired endodontist. Uh, one of those super specialists you talked about. Um, and this well, is kind you of our. Need them. You need them. They're important yeah. people too. That's the thing. Don't take any of this personally. Hi, Dad. What's your name? I'm David. David, nice to meet you. You have to have people like that in a society, but you have to contextualize how they. You, what you want to do is you want everybody to understand themselves, right? That's right. If they, if they understand themselves, now all of a sudden you have a super functional group because if they understand themselves and they can understand what they don't understand. And then, you know, like, you know, half the time I spend going, I don't know. I don't know. Right. You know, so anyway, nice to meet you. Give me your name again. Is it David is what you say? David. 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 Okay. Right. okay. And we, then we brother, tried to work out his username before you got in here, but yeah, it's on, Good fix it's it. on our mom's computer. <laughs> That's right. Mother's computer. Yeah. All right. So, and then then we have then we have Glenn. Nice to meet you, Glenn. Yep. Nice to meet you. And we're all in uh, North Carolina. So uh, I'm I'm assuming you spent a little bit of time in North Carolina. Uh, well, five years. A while back, five years. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, I love North Carolina. I think it's great. Great place. Yeah, it really is. It's 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 an awesome. So I'm assuming you're recording the video. So. I, I'm not going to be able to quite see your face as much as I want, but I'm going to try to address most of the stuff to the camera so you have a better feed. Is that what you want? I mean, I don't. So we're going to actually extract the audio so you can do whatever's comfortable. Oh, you, so you're just going to, you're going to play the audio? Yes, we're going to I mean, pull the audio and then cut it. Yep. That's okay. So you don't really need the video. That's right. Not essential. Okay. Well, I'm going to just turn it off then because I didn't know a lot of these people are using the video and, I'm going to turn it off yeah. and go back to the regular, regular just front view. Then I can watch your face. Cool, sounds because good. I am the empathy dude. You know, it's one of those things. That's right. So, 
And it really does matter. It's fascinating how it works. You know, it's such an enormous information channel that, of course, it's the blind spot. So nobody recognizes it. It really is. But it's also, I'll tell you this, it's fantastically difficult to measure. And it so is. how do you come up with a system where you measure this stuff? I mean, right. you know, that the people that have a more developed empathetic profile will also connect more concepts. Interesting. Which Super goes back then to the knowledge structure work that I talk about, which says that if you develop empathy, you will also develop the um, ability to connect stuff, right? And yeah. then there's Matt Lieberman, and then most of them will not write back. And their focus is, is really on, you know, Matt Lieberman is somebody is frustrating because that guy's got an MRI or, a, or an fMRI, yeah. And so yeah. like down at UCLA, he won't write back. Oh, um, man. Yeah, I mean, so, but, but he wrote the book called Social. I don't know if you've seen this book or not, but, but it's, it's a book that basically talks about how empathy is the blind spot in the academy. And then, if you, then for me, I read the book and I go through it and I'm like, you can see where you haven't fixed your blind spot because you have these same right. problems that everybody else is. But once again, there's this individual who's poking at the, you know, they're, they're poking at the simulation. That's super cool. It's really fascinating. Well, it's super cool. It's what I like to say is that once you really understand what I've written, you'll be able to read minds and that's a great thing. And once you understand what I've written, you'll be able to read minds and it's a really depressing thing. So okay. it's, it's, it's really a mixed bag because <laughs> it can also discourage you from, from working with people. I mean, because we're not all perfect and certainly I'm not, you know, in, in one's assessment of how things work. So, so it's all, all fascinating. So at any rate, there's, 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 and so I ended up in this space for all sorts of different reasons, you know. <clears throat> I mean, I am a design guy, but I started on nonlinear systems and then I applied nonlinear systems to all this stuff that I thought about. And I had a lot of personal trauma, which definitely shaped my perspective because trauma is a major driver in how people um, grow and develop or not develop. And it's one of the things where if we don't master trauma, especially for young people in society, we're fucked. Yep because we're creating too many traumatized people right now. That's right. And, and when you do that, you know, so I wrote a piece, I don't know if you saw it on Sparta. No, I didn't. Yeah. So, so the, you know, everybody wants to talk about the Spartans, right. And how cool they were, but actually what they did was generate a literal race of psychopaths. Super and warrior society. You know, yeah, throw the but, babies off if they don't. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know about that, right? They yeah. throw the babies off the cliff, right? And can you imagine being a young mother? You just gave birth, and now you walk up there. This is the empathy thing, right? And you show these old men, you know, this baby, and they go, this baby isn't good enough. Throw this baby off the fucking cliff. Jesus. Jesus. That, that happened, right? Horrible. Yeah. Really horrible. Yeah, it's really horrible. And so in a short time thing, what you do through the classic disruption of attachment patterns that humans have is you create these psychopaths who are capable of doing anything. But in the end, the level of disorder gets to the point in, in society because they're all psychopaths. Right. And they, they, they distort and lie and so on and so forth. And then you can't have a society. And so Sparta basically set back the entire Peloponnesian Peninsula with the whole Peloponnesian War thing, like 200 years or thousands of years over the 100-year span of the Peloponnesian War. 
And so, uh, you know, and it's also fascinating because, you know, because there's all this V-beam matching between, um, you know, people who want to write about Sparta who are low empathy, right? I understand, right. <laughs> and they're saying about how cool all this stuff is. And what they're really doing is showing how crazy they are. Right. So you end up with this completely distorted view of this ancient society. And now the proof's in the pudding. So if you look at Athens and Sparta now, whatever to 2,500 years later, whatever, I can't quite remember the dates here, but 2,500 years later, Sparta is a town of 30,000 people. That's funny. And, and Athens, yeah, and Athens is 3 million. Yep. Right? That's so wild. wild. It's really wild. Once you, once again, it's like you recontextualize that whole framework of, of um, you know, how, how does this really work, right? I mean, how, yeah. what's going on? You know, it's like you glorify the Spartans. Well, then they should have grown into this world civilization and they didn't. It didn't happen. That's super interesting. And, and you mentioned a, a V meme. Could you just define that quickly for, kind of for the audience? I think it's a super important concept. Sure, yeah. So a value meme is actually a set of values that govern the how social structures work. Okay, and that's a really hard, con that's a really hard, idea. And I write, everybody asks that question, what's a V-meme? What's a V-meme? Right. I wrote about that in, the, in the, the, the post to the point now where sometimes I have a hard time explaining it. But here's a short thing. It's like the values that, the easiest one to understand as far as a, a, a value set, okay? It's a value set that drives other behaviors that the society does. So it's the stuff underneath. So for example, in an authoritarian system, because we, we have had a lot of experience here lately with authoritarianism. <laughs> That's right. Right? So it's, easy, it's easier to understand, okay? So in an authoritarian system, the, 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 the social structure, the dominant social structure is a power hierarchy. And that's gotcha. easy to understand, right? There's a dude or a woman, and it's, gender, it's not, not necessarily gender specific. I mean, let me tell you, there's some badass women out there too. <laughs> and so everything depends on the view of that person on the top. So what that means is that person is in control of the information coherence in the larger system. Gotcha. They're the one. Like, this is like people are like, why are Trump supporters like Trump supporters? And so Trump is a classic narcissistic psychopath collapsed egocentric that's at the top of this power structure right and yep. he takes his responsibilities unfortunately emergently very seriously right that's right and programming messages and so those messages come down the hierarchy okay now in order to accept his messages there's a certain number of people that because of whatever their background those messages are actually resonant right? Right. No, no change required, right? The proud boys, whatever, right? But in order for that lack of flux up the system to, to change his views, the people at the bottom have to be depressed. It's actually a function of how the system works, okay? Because in an authoritarian system, you want people to only do stuff when you tell them to do it. 
I see. So that means the rest of the time, what are they supposed to do? Nothing, right? Just hang out. They're supposed to hang out and wait to be told what to do. But most people won't, don't really just want to, dependent on their own development and agency and so, so on and so forth, most people don't just want to sit around and wait, right? Right. So the way that you make them wait is you make them depressed. And then they exist at a low energy state until you activate them in some way or another. And so the value meme of an authoritarian system is directly related to power and control, right? So all the different things that, that are out of there, which then assembles that social structure emergently. That's the way it has to exist. And then when you impose, and this is the systemy stuff, okay, when you impose information flow constraints, right? That the only way that, um, so I wrote a paper on this and I, 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 I wanna try not get too far afield because it's interesting as heck. Um, what happens with the, you know, but most people are not gonna get this. So what happens is that people above like, so you have people, you have the one person at the top and they're the person that tells everybody what to do, okay? So then you have, let's say three layers, okay? And the value of the person below the person at the top is directly decided by the person at the top. Got it. Right, so in an authoritarian system, whoever the, whatever the, the Fredos are, or whatever you, know, you wanna talk about, the, the henchmen or henchwomen are, is decided by the person at the top, okay? So, so what happens is that the people down at the bottom are the ones where the rubber hits the road, okay? Right. And instead of sending any information up that is synergized or out of the belief range of people, what happens is all the intermediate nodes basically serve as aggregators. So let's say, you know, there's a person at the top, two more down, okay? So now you have this third level and then the fourth level is all the people, right? Right. So. So the best that that person one level up can do is take the input and, and place it someplace in the context of coherence with the top person before they send up any information to the top. And what that does is it actually creates a metalinear closed structure, which then is incredibly prone to entropy. And so math says it starts to collapse over time. Interesting. Isn't that cool? So is that, is that why we have no um, uh, immortal companies? It seems like uh, most joint stock companies are quite authoritarian just by design. Yeah. You the CEO. 40 years is the longest thing because they're basically, regardless, and some of them are modified, they're actually modified legalistic hierarchies, but they're not open systems. And since they're not open systems, and then so what happens is they go through a devolutionary process, and I've written about this, and also, um, um, oh, what's his name? I'm, I'm basically his name, Roger. Um, he's the, he's, he was the Dean at Toronto. He, he humors me, talks to me every now and again. Um, he's famous too. I don't know why I'm spacing his name, but nonetheless, he wrote the book, The Design of Business, so you can look it up. But, cool. you know, you go through this process of, and, and people have seen this in companies, right? So you start with a small group of people. Right. And, people are interacting, right? And they're peers and they talk and so on and so forth. There's a lot of creative energy 
and things start evolving, right? And so, so Roger Martin, okay. Roger Martin. Roger Martin, okay. And so, so at any rate, um, then over time, you get past a certain level of number of people and their, their population dynamics in this, and you start getting a hierarchy. So a hierarchy then starts needing these rules of telling people how to talk to each other. So there's authoritarian power structures, and then one level up is a legalistic hierarchy, which says if this person's the accountant, then they do the accounting, and they have all these rules. And when you talk to them, you have to follow these rules and so on and so forth, right? So what happens is you start imposing these restrictive more closed systems till finally you get a completely closed system and then the entropy comes in and you know you know the easiest thing to say is that's why sex is so wonderful right because at some level it's an open system and well it can be right but you know in, in modern society and so you get this mixing because if you don't have it then you get basically the equivalent of what's called parthenogenesis which is where you have a bacteria that can reproduce itself, just one bacteria. But thermodynamics is a bugger, man. I mean, you know, sooner or later, you're going to get errors in the code, and then the thing's going to collapse. There's no pressure. There's no evolutionary pressure. Yeah. Well, it just, it's just, yeah, it's just the, it's, it's the entry. It's every, every exchange has a potential for error, depending on the transmission. Interesting. So Chuck, I spent uh, last night, um, in front of the football game, reading the blog, and I spent <laughs> as much time. I thought I would know the definition of a word, and then I would read the blog. I'd go, I don't know, and I'd step back and go look. And I spent as much time looking stuff up as I did reading the blog, but I did get to learn a lot. So one of the things that, right off the bat, that tripped me up was the word meme. Sure. You want to tell? You want to talk about that for a minute, and then a lot of these, like I, once I worked through it, like what a value meme was, sort of made sense. And I sort of have this loose understanding, but could you talk about that? Sure. So, so the the a meme. So I can't remember. It's like thirty or forty years ago. Thirty years ago, um, you know, there's this term that came up called a meme, and a meme was basically defined as this small viral piece of information that would be passed easily and reproducibly between various, um, whatever you want to call it, cognitive agents, I guess. I mean, I, yeah. this is, you know, people are actually going to have to listen to this. So I got to think about these words. All right. I mean, you know, I try to be precise because, you know, but, but sometimes, yeah, just between people, right. It's yeah. like, if you tell somebody this, then, um, you know, then, then they're going to very, very easily remember it. Okay, so a classic example, if I say to you, an apple a day, what are you going to tell me, doctor? Peace <laughs> doctor away. That's exactly right. That's a meme. Okay. And so... It says, an element of culture or system of behavior that can be considered to pass from one individual to another by non-genetic means, especially imitation. Beautiful. So an idea which perpetuates itself. So Chuck, if I, if I do okay, that okay symbol, is that a meme? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's in the software. There's nothing generic. There's nothing genetic per se about making the, the okay sign. Right. right. So, <clears throat> so what's his name? What Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. Yeah. Yeah. Dawkins wrote this book. Okay. And then they stopped. And the reason they stopped is actually in my work. The reason they stopped was because the way that they, their value meme that created the social structure that they worked out of 
basically constrain them to only creating knowledge fragments. So the whole definition of what a meme was stagnated and turned into Kermit looking out the window right. in a rainstorm thinking about a beer. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the reason that that happened, once again, now we've got to like get back into how the video game works, okay? So that's what a meme is. A meme, uh, the smallest meme is that. But there until kind of my work, memes got stuck because there is this huge popular authority, Richard Dawkins, who said this is what a meme is. And, and you know, Don Beck and some of the Spiral Dynamics people question this, and they have their own definitions, which they were the ones that coined the whole V-meme thing, um, said that they were persistent. But <clears throat> most of the academic community, because of the way the academic community thinks, basically didn't like the whole meme thing, okay? They like the idea that everything comes from genes. And the reason they like things that come from genes is because genes are persistent over longer time and actually map to the value meme set of the way the academics think. So they're not even aware that they like genes for the reasons that they actually like genes, or at least they, they or what they do is they say, why are you telling the guy? He's totally a fucking mad anyway, you know? So, so the point is, is that it got stuck. <clears throat> and I just didn't get it. I mean, because because basically, um, you know, it didn't seem to me that there was no way to judge the sophistication of any information. You know, it would just be an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? I mean, that's it. Or, or Kermit looking out the window. It's a, it's a knowledge fragment. And so if we go back to looking at genes, which build organisms through various physical laws, right? We would never say that a human is just their genes. So. Um, a friend of mine threw this paper at me one day about Conway's law, and that was another moment. And Conway's law says that basically the, the um, social structure of an organization will map to the product design. And I work, I, not so much now, but I, I still work with Boeing quite a bit. So I was just like, wow, this is an interesting idea, right? So if Conway's law is true, and there have been there have been some empirical all this stuff gets really hard to quote unquote prove because it all blends together and you can't just make simple experiments. But if Conway's law is true, then don't you have to know what you're going to build before you build it? Right, and it might be worth defining Conway's law just for the audience. Sure. So Conway's law says that the social structure of an organization will map to the product structure of what it produces. Super and important. The short, the short version of that is that if you're building an airplane, the wing person has to talk to the fuselage person, right? Right. And if you decide to hang the engines, as most commercial airliners do, off a pylon that attaches to the wing, you're never going to see those those engines end up inside the fuselage like a lot of the original aircraft had because they don't talk to each other. Right. How can they talk to each other. How can that happen? And so so unless you structure your organization so that it can happen. See? Interesting. Now it's not that you can't have it 
and there's all sorts of like I know all about that. But but my point is because I am an aerospace guy and I love planes. But but the point is is that's not the point. Okay, the point is is it can't happen unless people talk to each other, right? Right. So I was like scratching my head one day and I was going, "Don't you gotta know what you're making before you make it?" I mean, it seems pretty so. straightforward, yeah. right? Yeah. So then that led to what I called the intermediate corollary, which said, um, you know, basically that you have social structure and then in the middle you have this thing called knowledge structure and then you have product structure. Okay. Gotcha. And now all of a sudden I was like, uh Oh, this is a big idea. And I had been reading about spiral dynamics and I said, Oh, here is a set of what we call canonical or ordered, whatever you want to call it, not um, social structures. If you have canonical social structures, they're going to produce canonical knowledge structures. So they're going to reproduce knowledge structures in a pattern that matches the evolution of social structures in a pattern. And now all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's cool. That's really cool. That's cool. Because, because now all of a sudden there's other implications and we're really starting to see them now. So that means that if you are not evolved in a social structure to a particular point, the odds that you're going to be able to immediately understand or work at a different level of, a, a level of knowledge complexity is also not there. And that's what we're seeing right now. So that there are these complexity limits in what people can understand. And then, and then it, look, it gets much more complicated because it's not that, you know, nothing is that simple, right? On how humans actually do stuff and interchange ideas and so on and so forth. But that's the core. And so we start off and I said, well, that means, getting back to it, David, it's like, that means that memes actually can have predictable structures that are more complex dependent on the community that produces the idea. And where empathy comes in is that if you have people who are very empathetic and can exchange ideas, the odds that they will generate synergistic ideas then really goes up. Because if you're not empathetic, then you're back in that old status-driven social structure, which means I've got to tell you you're stupid and you have to tell me I'm stupid and you're not merging any knowledge at all. That's right. So, so empathy then turns out to be the main thread that runs through this idea of how do we synergize, you know, to come up with solutions to complex problems. And now we can take that and go back and look at how we've set up universities and in lots of ways companies and so on and so forth to ask ourselves, do we have any way of actually functionally solving our problems? And we're seeing, I mean, we're running the experiment. Right. right. Definitely. This problem seems to be the most apparent, like you just said, in, in uh, the academy and higher education and knowledge generation. Yeah. In a crazy status competition just precludes any kind of empathy or being able to work with people, it seems like. 
Yeah, oh, it's terrible. I mean, and then, you know, then institutions themselves then have things like, I'm sure you've seen the U.S. News and World Report, right? Oh, yeah, it's nuts. Oh, it's, it's just crazy. It's like, I call, I call, um, I call the U.S. News and World Report report on the report on colleges. I call that, um, what's the, 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 the Skynet, the Terminator Skynet. <laughs> right. You know, once you get something like that going, man, you've got Skynet, man, because oh, that man. Is, it just, it mimetically starts programming all the people's brains inside. And, and it doesn't favor awareness. It favors emergence. And see, that's the key thing. Because if you go and you talk to an individual faculty member and you say, do you think we should really be doing this? You know, as a person, right? From a right, person. It's a person right? right. They'll be like, I don't think this is working out. But then we'll all go back exactly into the social structure and do exactly the and same do thing. It. And it's just crazy. It's not working. And so then we do really, we do really clumsy kind of, um, um, you know, kind of bullshit things to try to get away from it. Right. Right. Um, but, but it's so powerful because we don't, we don't even recognize it, that it even has a power because we haven't figured out that we're in the, most people have not figured out we're in the simulation. Right. And if you can't talk about problems, you can't solve them. Yeah, because talking about problems then back and forth is empathetic, right? And so then it starts elevating the way that you think about things. And then you start getting new ideas. And then you start getting into this open system thing where now you start having information flux. And all now you start lining up all these physical principles that I spent my earlier part of the career writing about in the terms of how people communicate and talk to each other. So I want to make sure that your dad's happy here. So, so the reality is, is that we had this concept of the meme. And then what I did was I figured out a couple of things using Conway's law that enabled me then to say memes have structure and these structures are the functions of interactions. And then now all of a sudden you start, there's lots of conclusions that come out of that. And how did the value meme sort of, grow from there. So I sort of get the components and now I'm trying to stack them all again. Sure. Well, the value meme thing came originally from this guy, Don Beck and Claire Graves, who invented spiral dynamics. And they didn't really understand the same things that I understand about spiral dynamics. I mean, they're really bright. I mean, Don, I, I've talked to Don once. Um, there's a whole story behind spiral dynamics. Um, you know, Don's a genius, crazy genius. And he actually knows intrinsically, I think a lot of the stuff I write about. But when I approached spiral dynamics, I approached it from, spiral dynamics is written on the top level. Even though he talks about value means and he understands dynamics, it, has not, it hasn't percolated out. So I approached spiral dynamics in part um, looking at, it had problems. And it had problems that I wanted, whenever you have a systemic theory okay, that constantly generates exceptions, it means that something's wrong with the systemic theory. That's it's right. not a systemic theory. That's right. Does that make sense? I mean, you know, like gravity works everywhere. It's a great systemic theory, right? I mean, it's like, you know, that if you jump off a building in North Carolina, you're going to fall just as fast as if you jump off a building in Pullman, Washington, right? That's right. It's good guiding principle. Don't jump off that, of it, right? It has predictive power. 
Yes, and but it's universal. That's the key thing because we can it's make universal. smaller models and bound them, okay? And they're not global holistic guiding principles models, okay? But Spiral Dynamics was sitting there saying, I'm guiding principle model. So I was like, well, but I actually know what that means because I've done all this other stuff and you guys have a lot of exceptions. And right. so then I was like started unpacking why the exceptions were and they, they're all related to information flow because they don't really recognize the idea of empathy and empathy. The thing that's interesting about empathy is this whole, um, <clears throat> you know, basically what empathy is, is of course it's a nice thing and people immediately think about it in terms of feelings. But what it actually is, is information coherence between two agents that are talking to each other. So let's say we really connect. It's like, you totally get what's in my mind. I'm like, oh, okay, I get where you're at. You don't understand this, blah, blah, blah. And we work it out. And, you know, it takes a while because sometimes, you know, some of the stuff isn't easy. Like we're talking about memes, right? I mean, you know, some of the stuff is not easy. It's go out there and look in the literature. People have bad ideas all over the place, right? So you and me, okay, you and me, well, we sit down, we work it out, right? Then when we walk away from that exchange, this is the key point. We will say the same thing. We're close to the same thing. So what empathy really turns out to be is information coherence more than, you know, all the other things that we associate with being happy and so on and so forth. And then if you have information coherence, now all of a sudden you get back to the engineer in me, which says, well, okay, if you have information coherence, what's the scale mm -hmm. of that coherence, right? So mirroring is immediate. Like if I yawn and you yawn, okay, we have synchronized action, right? But that's very short. And if I'm in the other room yawning, you don't see me yawn, right? And so then you also have temporal persistence, right? And if you cry, then I cry or I try to comfort you and so on and so forth, right? So we have, we have, you know, I call it state level coherence, you know, and then you go up, you have data level coherence, which is rational empathy and blah, 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 on, 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 right? And so, so what it is, is it's the thing that dependent on the scale, time-wise and spatially, that syncs things up and allows coordinated action. And so it's split up. And so then all of a sudden now you start mapping this into this other stuff and then blah, 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 you know, it's off to the races again. <clears throat> Once you get a couple of these concepts, they turn out to be generative. Can you tell me about spiral dynamics? Because I sort of got that, but... Well, so spiral dynamics, is a, it was a theory that was proposed by Claire Graves. He was one of the geniuses of the age last, last century, okay? And it basically looks at societal progression or evolution over time, okay? We started out in survival bands. We moved to tribal societies. Then we have authoritarian societies, legalistic hierarchies, democracies, performance-based, you know, like the United States ideally is kind of set up as a performance-based legalistic hierarchy. Um, <clears throat> and then above that, you have communitarian societies, and then you have this thing they call the second tier. And um, above that, you have reflective behaviors where you can look back at yourself and ask, mm, am I really doing what I think I'm doing? You know, and then with all system approaches, then we get to a certain point, we can't know what's above us. That's the thing about complexity. It's like, I have a brain that's able to handle a certain amount of complexity. But once I get to a certain level and I look up, it's just blue sky, you know? I can't figure it out. So, so spiral dynamics was an encapsulation of that. But the problem with large theories like spiral dynamics is that they're very easy to 
anecdotally document, but they don't fit into the lower level knowledge structures, which allow this quote, this kind of thing, you know, they talk about proof. And then when they end up being parsed in the academy, the academy doesn't have the complexity necessary to ask the right questions about spiral dynamics. So it starts rejecting those ideas. So just like a gene that wouldn't fit with another gene, now you have um, memes that don't fit inside the context of the way that, that uh, the social structure that's in charge of generating knowledge works. And then you end up in the kook category if you're somebody like me. But then there's also a lot of kooky stuff that people propose out there because they don't really understand how stuff is. So I understand it, you know. I mean, the academy was set up to establish reliability of knowledge. Like, you know, you got to remember that it was only 500 years ago where, you know, what I'm fond of saying is the academy was founded by clerics and alchemists, right? Both, you know, first class, um, you know, mountebanks and con men, right? That's right. And, and, and you know, so we don't, our, our heritage is not something we talk about, but, but the point of the, the academy was, if you had a crazy idea and lots of people had crazy ideas, then you would bring it to the university and then the university would show whether it was actually true or not. And so that reinforced the way universities are set up. So you have a specialist and the specialist became a specialist of a specialist and so on and so forth, right? I mean, it served a purpose. But now all of a sudden, here we are in the 21st century. We are not the ones generating most of the information anymore in the universities. I mean, in fact, information is just rapidly getting propagated everywhere. And it just, whatever, there's some doubling rate I can't remember. And our role is not reliability anymore, though we kind of think it is because our social structure is still the way and we haven't done any self-examination and blah, 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 and on and on and on. So, so the whole game has kind of changed. So spiral dynamics in the university setting never went anywhere because it's really difficult to prove. Like I can, like I've reached out to um, people, have you ever heard of cleodynamics? Cleodynamics yeah. is the larger historical study of the patterns of history. But the people that are doing that, once again, they're interested, their brains emergently are interested in reliability. So if you say, let's have a larger theoretical framework, they don't like that even though their field says that they should like it. Yeah, exactly. And it should be discussed, right? <clears throat> now, it's an interesting point, David, because see, here's a really cool thing. Certain disciplines have in their, whatever you want to call it, meme v-meme better predictive tools. And what I like to say is physics is a good example. So physics, by basically grabbing math, developed a way to look out there and today's an interesting day for that too because you know two guys or three people i can't remember won the nobel prize for for the physics of black holes mm -hmm. okay. right so the original black hole work was all theoretical right and so it enabled us to look out across whatever millions of light years of space time figure out what these things were doing and then once they figured it out, it was legitimate. That's key. And then the people with the big telescopes, I mean, I don't know what they won the, I mean, I know they won it for black holes, but I don't know what the research was, to be honest. But I'm sure it was some meshing of the experimental, the empirical work that somebody with a big telescope 
with a big radio telescope, looked out there and found that all the right little waves lined up and then these guys got a Nobel Prize, right? So you see a merging, the easy, the easy definition is you say the merging of the theoretical with the empirical, right? The people that wrote the math down, you know, finally got to the point and then the empirical people came in and they found the measurements. But there's another way of looking at it. If you look at it from a mimetic perspective, basically the math serves what we call a metacognitive tool, meaning it lets us know what we don't know. We can't fly out there and see what happens at a black hole, okay? So the metacognitive tool that they used was mathematics. But then that then was buttressed by the cognitive tool, which was the empirical work. And so we have this meshing, which has made modern physics, um, you know, what, what it is today. But the interesting thing is that, you know, is that there's a great um, series on genius. I don't know if you've seen it. It was like on the natural, National Geographic um, channel yeah. about, about Albert Einstein. Okay. So here you have Albert Einstein. And so this guy is using math in a very metacognitive frame to come up with a special theory of relativity and general relativity and blah, blah, blah. And everybody knows Einstein was a genius. So it's easy to talk about, right? Nobody's going to argue with you. But when he came out with this stuff, the German community wanted to kill him. Because once again, now you get into... You know, so Einstein was a really bright guy and he, he probably knew he's in the simulation, right? But he didn't know what I know. And I'm not Einstein, I'm a lucky, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lucky squirrel. I'm a blind squirrel that finds a couple of nuts, okay? But, but, but the thing is, is that, is that the conflict that actually happens in the memetics between guiding principles and empirical work is, is at least three to four level value mean levels. And what that means is that that the people down at the lower level just think you're totally crazy. And then the people at the upper level think you're a barbarian. So, so it's very, very interesting that these mimetic strains, if you look at history from that perspective, they, they turn out to be the same thing. And the easiest example of that, of course, is Einstein's work, if you look at the history. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, we tend to look backwards and believe that like, that there's this halcyon time where everybody was happy about new ideas, but people have never been happy about new ideas. <laughs> I mean, they've always been violently opposed, right? And if you really come up with something that's groundbreaking, people want to kill you, okay? And <clears throat> my favorite quote is from Max Planck, also the famous quantum theorist, right? Where he said, science, science, science advances one funeral at a time. Yep. <laughs> yep. Right, and he came up with that. And and if you look at the history of these guys, they all did this stuff. Like I'm trying to remember what the the Italian guy was. So so um, Max, what was his? Jeez, oh, I'm I'm spacing it. Oh, Ernst Mach haunted this one Italian. I, I'll I'll remember it. Um, physicist. He was the guy that basically decided that there was an atom, and Ernst Mach harassed this guy until he killed himself. Yeah, so this is just historic, but it's a result of this conflict. There's a mimetic, what happens is what drives people is that you have this deep 
mismatch in how you understand the world. Okay. Right. And my contribution is that you can actually understand that and you can categorize it. And once you see it, <clears throat> then you can show how the video game's working. So now I don't I've, know got, I've got this question. Sure. Do you think that the problems we see socially, politically today are because we are trying to evolve into a communitarian society? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're trying, hopefully we're trying to get up to a second tier society because basically what's happened is we have all these problems because basically we have neglected development, especially in the United States, where we should be, where we should put, be putting more money, not just in education, but in exposing young people to broader and broader experiences so that they can evolve their ability to connect the dots. Okay, we don't do that in school. I mean, what we've done is we've turned our schools into these fortresses where kids have to go there and worry about getting shot. I mean, and I know that personally because I have two boys, they're 20 and 22, and um, I'm a single dad, you know, I'm remarried, but I was, I was a single dad, raised my kids pretty much myself. Um, that's a whole story to have off the record, but, but, um, but um so I was involved with trying to get the school to design, they were gonna, they had a bond, they were gonna fix the high school, okay? So, you know, I'm this educator. I mean, I'm actually kind of famous for my pedagogy. I really, really do understand how to teach people. And the way you do it is you have to set up experiences, you gotta give them enough information, scaffolding, blah, 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 there's whole stuff, there's a whole formula. Um, so I was in there with the high school people and I had written, an op-ed for the newspaper saying, well, this new high school, like they were basically building this prison on a hill and it was over the old school, right? So I said, wouldn't it be nice if the high school was downtown where the students could come in and they could ride their bikes down the hill and then we had a way for them to ride their bikes, you know, a bike lift to take them back down and all this fantasy. I knew it was never gonna happen. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not delusional, one thing. I mean, I'm a little depressive, but I'm certainly not delusional, you know? So, um, so um, I was like, wouldn't it be great? And um, then what happened was I wrote this op-ed and I said, you know, we can, the kids can go out to lunch. That will be great. You know, we need to have an hour long lunch period on and on and on. So I get this call from a friend of mine who's on the school board. And he says, I want you, the superintendent really wants to talk to you. And I'm like, I'm a nobody man. What does he want to talk to me about? You know, I'm a single dad. I'm trying to hang on to my kids, you know? He's like, no, no, he wants to talk to you. I'm like, well, okay, sure, whatever. I said, I know when I'm getting invited to an ass whooping contest, you know, where I'm going to be the guest of honor, right? But you know, this guy was a friend of mine. So, and, and he's, a, he's an awesome human. So I said, sure, sure, Bill, I'll do it, right? So I go up to this meeting. Of course, it is an ass kicking problem. It's, it's, it's an ass whooping party. I am the guest of honor. Um, these, these people start in on me, you know? <clears throat> and so I said, well, pull out your spec. Let's look at your spec. I am an engineer, right? Yeah. And so I start, you know, I said, what was the reason behind the spec? Because I pulled open the map and it looked like basically, like I called it a submarine squid because they had, they had, 
put these blast doors in between these arms that they had put off from the center of the school, okay? And then they said, they said, um, well, the input that we got was that people were afraid of school shootings. And that dictated the architecture. Oh my. If you're gonna dictate the architecture because you're trying to you know, make a hardened site, right? To protect against school shootings, which just so you know is easily obviated because what school shooters always do, this is a fun fact, I learned this from my kids. That's why you gotta to talk to everybody, right? Yeah. They, they pull the fire alarm. Yep. People as they go out the door. Yep. So, so the whole thing is, is kind of bogus, but it makes, but security theater. Yeah, it's, it's, it's security theater. Yeah, totally. So I'm like, well, this is really depressing. Right. Um, and then I looked at him and I said, why did you call me? You know, I'm this progressive educator, but I'm a nobody. I, I write an op-ed for the column, right? Or for the newspaper, because I want the local paper to do better than it can. Because if I don't write, then somebody else is going to write something really stupid. So, um, <laughs> and of course, everybody looks at that as being fantastically arrogant, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's true. I can't help that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know. So um, they said, well, the phone's been ringing off the hook since you wrote that op-ed. And I said, you know, and so I had made this list of things, you know, bikeability, lunchtime, socialism, yeah. you know, all this stuff, right? And so I got a little hopeful. And then I was like, what were they saying, you know? Because I live a pretty isolated life. I mean, people respect me, you know, and, and people in the town actually like me probably more than the people at the university. Um, and they said, they said, all to a one, they said the same thing. And I said, what was that same thing? And they said, you should listen to that guy because he's a smart guy. That'll never happen. <laughs> well, no, but now here's the depressing thing. So what they had done was that they weren't advocating. They didn't share the visions that I had. I had just become the authority. See, and so now I was the authority dictating the future as opposed to another authority that said the kids shouldn't get shot. Yep. And it's not, in hindsight now, I see that that's not such a bad thing because certain, sometimes if you're going to evolve a community, you actually have to establish these mechanisms. I call them empathetic ladders that grow the way so that people can actually fulfill that larger destiny that you need more people to fill. But at the time, I want you to know that, you know, I mapped that to my whole V-meme set and I was like, you know, shit, man, I'm not breaking the code here. I mean, I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'm not part of the problem, but I'm not fixing anything either. So, and they built their school and it's literally, they have an airlock to get in. And oh my God. All the, all the, all the um, knobs on the doors lock in between classes. Jesus. But this is not uncommon now. That's bananas. Yeah, it's totally bananas. And so we have to develop young people, but how do you develop young people? So we have 30 minutes you know, 30 minutes that they have for lunch. And I was in the context of the conversation with the, um, the superintendent. He said, well, what would you do to present school, prevent school shootings? Fair question. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's a concern of his constituency and he'd heard quite a bit about it, right? Yeah. So I looked at him and I said, well, you've got these amazing biological empathetic, empathetically sensitive computers that are wandering around your halls all the time 
that can tell you exactly when somebody's having a really bad day. And yep. if you cultivate those connections, and of course I'm talking about the students, then you're far less likely to have a school shooting because you'll ID the person who's going to do that before they do it. Yep. Right? If you have that larger connected, you know, talk about a communitarian network and then everybody grows together and then you don't even have the problem. But that requires predictive consequential behavioral thinking. Yep. That's not what the lower value memes even create. They're reactive. And so the huge problem that we're having by basically creating these low empathy environments for kids is that we are not generating proactive thinkers. And the people that are running them are also not proactive thinkers. They're reactive. If you're designing school so that it doesn't get shot up, you're designing for a reactive scenario. Yep. That's super interesting. So then you end up in a trap, right? So what do you do, right? I mean, and the reality is, is, is there are no easy answers, but one of the answers is that you have to develop people and it's not just teaching them, you know, the data declaration of independence. It's very, it's a fascinating thing. And in Scandinavia, they've done a lot of work on this. They call it building. And I'm friends with the people over there that are behind that movement because, you know, of course we get together and then, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, they found me. So it's interesting how it works. So I don't know if that answers your question or if it was just a fun story, but, but um, there you go. That's great. That's great. And I wanted to talk a little bit about nutrition. I know you've written a lot about it and uh, sure. I, I, it, it's a little tangential, but I, I thought it was super interesting. Well, it turned out it's actually really important. Let me go. Can I, I, since we're just recording here, can we shut this off? Let me go use the restroom. Yeah, go right ahead. Hopefully you're having a little fun. Yeah, it's great. Who spent last night reading the blog. Nice. You invited me this morning. Did you do this morning? Wait, was it this morning or was it last night, Will? It was a couple days last ago. Night. A couple days ago? Are you sure? Anyway, um, how literally do you think he means the simulation? I think like, he did very literally. But totally literally? Or, or is it metaphorical towards um how we generate our own societal structures that makes sense um like how matrixy is it is it the metaphor it, behind the matrix or is it it, it really matrix is a, the, the matrix is a, a really good analogy i think of that and that we're sort of in the world and we're living it but it is sort of a and then but i don't think there's the, 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 the things behind the walls, pulling the strings, um, it's nobody. It's nobody really controlling that, I don't think. I think that's that's, we're trying to understand that. Well, but the problem is, is in a static, in a, in a status-driven environment, if you say that, you know, you're out of control, then it frames your, it frames your, um, your perspective towards emergence, right? Because right now what's going on with COVID is just a classic example of this. So the reality is, is COVID, every experiment that we have run, and we've run experiments in cruise ships and prisons, okay? Over and over and over again, and, and actually in protests too, okay? 
show the interior spaces once it gets in. Yep. Everybody yep. gets aerosolized. Yeah, it's aerosolized in, in interiors. And yep. in exterior environments, guess what? Doesn't do anything. And we have this interior super spreader system called the airline system that basically brought it across the entire world in a very short amount of time. Yep. Right? Okay. And, and we have run this experiment over and over and over again. It's fantastically contagious, very infectious, but it turns out not to be that lethal. Otherwise we'd all be dead or half of us would be dead or we'd be like smallpox dead. Small, smallpox dead is 40% dead. Okay. Yeah, it's really dead. Yeah, it's really dead. Okay. It's a little worse than the flu. Um, you know, I don't want to minimize it. It turns out that the totals are directly in for a given nation are directly related to the intensity of the flu seasons in the past three years. So what it really is, uh, it's really, uh, it's really a, a respiratory immunological weakness. And so if you have a good respiratory system and you have good immunological response, you don't really have much to worry about with COVID. Does that mean if you're in good physical shape and, you know, good aerobic yeah. shape that you're going to be much safer? Oh, you're just fine. You're, you're not going to get it. I mean, we're just not seeing that many deaths anymore. And then it turns out to be have a highly seasonal component. But now let's think about these concepts, not to argue about COVID, but let's think about them from a mimetic perspective. Okay, so I'm a complex system scientist. I stand up and I say this stuff. The first thing mimetically that gets said is you're not an epidemiologist. You have not been trained in epidemiology. And I'm like, I'm a smart guy, man. I'm putting stuff together. It's like, it's all gonna match. I mean, don't you take this evidence that's out here with these prisons? They're like, shut up. You're not a smart guy. That's authority driven thinking. Okay, not, I'm going to refute your argument, you know, and there could be some refutations because I'm not perfect either, you know, turns out, fun fact, you know, that the, the Navy has worked out COVID, just so you know, I can't talk a lot about that, I work with the Navy, um, but yeah, they worked it out, okay. It's cool. It's a ventilation problem, so, um, yeah, and but they can't talk about it because then it's a national security thing, right? Yeah. Can you talk about this, like if you're in a grocery store with like, it's sort of like a warehouse. Yeah. And then, um, or if you're in a gym with a, a lot of space, then are you lot, a lot less likely to contract it? Even yeah. though people might I wrote a bunch about this. Yeah, it's basically dose dependent. And the problem with it is that the thing that it, it screws up, see, is it turns out that I think, or at least what I see when I see the larger picture data is that it has about the same rate reaction as your immune system. And that fucks up the models, okay? Because mm. usually you're supposed to either get infected and then your immune system catches up or you, you know, infected and explode and your immune system catches up or um, infection goes slow and then all of a sudden, you know, your immune system catches up and pul pulverizes it. Um, it doesn't work like that, it's dose dependent. So it's more like a radiation problem. But the immune, the immune community doesn't have a radiation paradigm in how they work. Right. So exposure matters. So if you're in a closed space where you're being redosed over and over again, you're, it's still low odds, but your odds go up. There's no question about that. 
So masks are kind of one of these things that they, they kind of work. They're certainly not the worst thing you can do, right? And social distance, once again, because it's aerosolized and it's droplet-based. I mean, there's, that's also true. It's a respiratory virus. That's, that's, that's obvious. But if you're outside, when it comes to being aerosolized, I mean, if you think aerosols are persistent outside, I mean, just take a can of air freshener and spray a little bit in the air and tell me how long you can smell it. It's not yeah. better than that, right? I mean, these are, these are not mystical principles, but they have to be all fit together, right? Yeah. So Definitely. I can't remember how we got started on this. We're going to get to nutrition, I think. But, but, but the, the COVID thing is, is, so the way that people then deny whatever is they never want to argue about the issue. And then the other thing is, is that they also really don't want to talk about scale because they don't think in terms of scale. So like right now in the university, we have 2,000 cases in these two little towns that we have. Okay. That's a lot of cases, right? What? Yeah. We have two hospitalizations. Wow. Wow. And you know how many deaths we have? Wow. Zero. We've had zero deaths during the whole pandemic. And what, how do you account for that? Do you got any ideas about that, Chuck? What's well, they're young. Most of the people in the, yeah. the they're young. Um, we don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, they close the nightclubs, which at the beginning was probably a smart thing, right? Yep. And then we generated herd immunity. I mean, you know, so here's the other thing. So the, the, the pandemic always has a timeline. It's not a new day every day, okay? But do you know when the pandemic started in the minds of Pullman, Washington? Maybe in June. But it actually started in February. I know because I think I got it from the kids, right? Because, you know, I had students and we're basically hooked to Seattle through a, through air, air traffic, you know. I mean, we really are. I mean, the flights have gone down, but we, we have fly five. We used to have five flights a day. back. Okay. So we were basically hooked to Seattle. Seattle got it early and it came over and the kids drive back and forth. I mean, there's all this mixing from the transportation system. That's why when people talk about the 1918 flu thing, it's so stupid. It's just wildly crazy because the 1918 flu spread through troops. And I don't know if anybody remembers what World War I was famous for, but, you know, trench warfare. Yeah. So how fast did those troops move? You know, and compare that to the mixing that happens. And of course, New York got it bad very simply because they had the super spreader system called the subway before anybody was doing anything. I mean, have you been to New York? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well then, you know, it's like the subway is like this amazing, crazy thing. Right. I mean, cause it's this agglomeration of like five different companies and it goes just everywhere and on and on and on. Right. So New York just got completely saturated with it very quickly in a super spreader environment and they all got it. And now look at New York, look at the COVID death totals. There's no, nobody's dying. You know, and, and we lose also, see, the other thing is, is that people live isolated, you know, fragmented existences. Look at the CDC numbers. We lose 160,000 people a year from respiratory illnesses. Now, COVID put a bump on that, but there's a long time period, you know, once again, it's not that you shouldn't take these things seriously. I really want to make this clear. But what happened with us was we, what happened with our nation was we bend this up into Republican and Democrat viewpoints. Yes. And that's just a disaster. And you're in trouble. Yeah, that's huge trouble. You can't get to the truth because now all of a sudden you're working in the limit zone and in-group, out-group, tribal dynamics, on and on and on. You can't get to the truth. And that's terrible for public health because there are things that you can do 
to slow things down. Like, but most of the lockdown stuff was just bullshit, but it was a shorter authoritarian driven message and people were afraid and so it worked. So the, the epidemiologists that were talking the longer story as I talked about earlier, they were not heard because yep. they, people thought the same. That's what I feel good about at least is I'm not so crazy. You know, the, the people on the outside who were epidemiologists who have a complex system viewpoints actually agree, agree with like 98% of what I wrote. I, I, I differ on the, the, the background spread, but I think I'm going to be vindicated on that too. That basically there's this low level background spread. You have a reason to delay things because then everybody builds up some level of, you know, kind of like virulation. They, they do build it yeah. up. Um, so, but then you get to a certain point where the virus is ubiquitous. And now all of a sudden, think about what I'm actually saying from a knowledge complexity standpoint. I'm saying there's a seasonality component. There's a time dependent thing where people are going to, you know, I mean, the, the other sad thing is that you kill off the week early. Yep. Yep. You know, and people have a real hard time. And then they say, well, you're disrespecting the dead. So now you're back in the lower, you know, limbic system value means you can't make any progress and everybody thinks you're an evil person. But the reality is, is that this, this complex phenomenon that's seasonal, very time dependent. And I can tell you this, one thing I do know after teaching dynamics for as long as I have, is that one of the hardest thing that students have as far as understanding stuff is like, I will put up a differential equation on a mass spring damper, blah, 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 just bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. And then I'll say, okay, can you draw the time series of this on the board, which is just a sine wave, right? They can't do it. Because those circuits are hard to develop. It's mimetically challenging. I mean, I think it's all the equation because I teach them how to do that, right? But then I say, well, translate it into, a, you know, validity grounded is my term into the real world. And they're just like their brains just blow off the surface. <laughs> the way they think. Having taken dynamics, I, I, feel, I feel your student's <laughs> pain. Is that, is that resonant though, Glenn? Do you see what it I'm is. Saying? Yeah, it's really wild. You know, it's like, well, just draw a curve on how you think this thing moves. Because that's what we're supposed to be teaching you, right? <laughs> right. And we've seen a hundred spring mass systems in physics one and you know you still can't even you just look it. at it and you're like sine wave maybe it's a function of your it's a function of your development so hopefully this helps because now that you're self-aware then you'll be like oh wait a minute here i remember that because it's not that hard but but it's funny because left to their own devices people will function in the value mean that their social structure you know, that their social structure promotes. Now, you can always, you know, one of the things about empathy is you can pull people up. You can connect to somebody, somebody else's brain. Like when I sit down and talk to a student and explain this, I'm pulling them up and they're using my brain and I'm using, you know, I'm helping them with my brain and, you know, connecting to them. But when the connection goes away and you walk out of the classroom, Glenn, if you're an engineering student, you certainly know what happens. It's like all of a sudden your brain's like, oh, how did that work, man? I mean, it made so much sense. <laughs> I don't even have the textbook yet. <laughs> oh, God, you know, I used to be able to figure all that out. Oh, wow, you know. Because mirroring what you're really doing, it turns out what you're really doing is you're mirroring what the professor's doing. And if they're a good professor, then they're keeping pace and cueing you and so on and so forth. And there are lots of good professors out there. Not all of us are bad. So, so at any rate, yeah, with COVID, it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the election's going to happen and the pandemic's going to end. And I just hope that it ends and they don't feel a need to make, you know, everybody wear masks forever because masks, you know, are, they do salutary stuff. I wrote about masks. I understand how they work. I am a 
aerodynamicist, you know, I mean, I do this stuff, you know, I did it for a living. So, um, you know, my history is I actually um, did high angle of aero, high, high angle of attack aerodynamics and um, helicopter noise reduction for like five years. So, That's cool. yeah, you know, the wop, wop, wop that helicopters make. I, I was a guy that wrote the algorithm that took out some of the wop, right? I wrote the physics for the algorithm. It's kind of it's kind of weird because you learn this ten years out of the back. You know the helicopter guys come back to you or your friends and like, well, it worked that you did. And, oh, we actually use it. I was like, that's a surprise. You know, I am a professor after all. Nobody uses anything to do. So all right, but 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 nonetheless, getting back to um, diet. Well, diet is wrecking this country. I mean, it's a huge. Yeah. I mean, so think about it on the basic level. So we have about a 50% obesity rate, which means that people are some 20, 25%. I don't know. All the BMI stuff is all bullshit. Everything in the diet world is all bullshit. Yep. The reason it's bullshit was largely because you got, you know, the, the research field got kidnapped by this psychopath and his name was Ansel Keys. And it's really weird because usually history has large trends and you don't, you're not able to trace things back to one or two people. But in the case of the nutrition research, you can. And there's a wonderful book written by this guy, Gary Taubes. It's called The Case Against Sugar. So, but the reason Ansel Keys was successful, once again, it's like no one person doesn't come up an, with an idea and change the world. One person comes up with an idea that memetically fits into the larger picture. It works. And then it works, right? <clears throat> We're not there with this stuff, guys. Just so you know, our R naught is way less than one. <laughs> Which is part of the problem. But what's interesting is I also wrote it for leaders of leaders. And I wrote it to, to preserve it, to archive it. But I also wrote it for leaders of leaders. But then you have to get there and there's a whole complicated Silicon Valley story associated with that too, which is really interesting. But, but um, nonetheless, so getting back to diet. So about four years ago, so about five year, years ago, I got discovered by one of the founders of what's called the Lean Agile movement. So do you know what Lean Agile is? It's like software development, Agile? Yeah, we use Agile. Yeah, he's, he's, one, of the, he's one of the pioneers and uh, <clears throat> his name's Ryan Martins and he's a good friend. And um, he found me because I actually have some big wins in the social policy category, environmental, environmental policy category. And he wanted to know how to do it. And he found my work on empathy. And there's a guy, Peter Senge. I don't know if you ever heard of Peter, but he wrote a book, The Fifth Discipline. And so Ryan was working with Peter and Ryan was like, I'm not getting enough. But Peter said, you need to go talk to this guy. And Peter's a prof at MIT. Peter never returns my phone calls. It's really funny or my emails or anything. Because <clears throat> you think that Peter with friends with Ryan say, go talk to that other dude, you know, who I'm not, once again, I'm not kidding about not being famous. I'm just not famous, you know. So, so at any rate, so I met Ryan and um, I started gaining weight, but I exercise a lot. And I was just like, this is so weird, you know, but guess what? You know, I'll just be a fit fat guy. I'm going to ride my bike and I'm not going to worry. And I blew both my knees skiing at the same time. Yeah. I was up to almost 300 pounds. <clears throat> and Ryan was just like, why don't you just try this diet thing? And it was Tim, he's, he told me to read Tim Ferriss's book. It's called The Four-Hour Body. And um, I was like, look, man, I eat healthy because I do. You know, I don't eat a lot of junk food. It's like, hey, come on, just give it a try. Give it a try. That's what friends are for, right? So the first week I lost five pounds. 
And then the next week I lost five more pounds. And I'd never been able to lose weight in my life before at all. Yeah. Right. And then the next week I lost five pounds. And I What's was like, on? I got to figure this shit out because that's the way my brain works, right? Yeah. So I started digging into the nutrition literature. And it's just a disaster. Oh, but yeah. all shaped by the authority driven legalistic value mean but it's mostly authority driven stuff and it's also run by vegans interesting yeah go and ask these people anybody that would tell you that a plant-based diet is the most healthy now look there are tons of ethical reasons to not eat meat okay i totally get that you know and but even the stuff about the effect on the environment is very very weak because i looked at it and I was like, if you want to believe that not eating meat is going to save the plant, that's really not the problem. The problem is really simple. It's called the internal combustion engine. It's, right. gas, that comes out of, it's gas that comes out of the ground. You burn that shit, and it <laughs> pumps carbon into the air. And you burn coal, coal, and it pumps carbon into the air. And if you don't stop doing that, we're all going to die. Because that stuff is not bullshit, okay? It's a big problem. How fast it'll go is really scary. It could be nobody really knows the answer to that. But it's scary enough that you want to do something. So at any rate, so I started thinking, okay, so why did we get here, right? I mean, how did we get here? What? So you now start seeing this reinforcement of value memes across value memes. So one of the biggest things that um, we were taught is that the reason that we invented agriculture was because we were going to starve. Yep, got to feed everybody. Right. Got to feed everybody. Make enough calories. We got to have enough calories, which is all bullshit major, right? So, well, I mean, that's, so at any rate, it's all just raw energetics, right? So wait a minute here. <clears throat> so how do you invent anything? And see, once again, this is the thing about empathy and actually getting in touch with yourself. How do you invent anything when you're hungry? Yeah, possible. I mean, if you're hungry and you almost always starved, okay, because the myth is also until we had agriculture that we almost always starved, right? And if you eat a primarily carbohydrate diet, what happens, of course, is you become, you become metabolically unstable. <clears throat> and when you get hungry, you know, I mean, we now have the term hangry, you know, you get hangry, right? Yeah. And so you start accepting all that stuff there. And you realize that the ultimate authoritarian control over you is to tell you that you're going to starve and die. So yep. it's actually the value memes talking inside the social structure to get you to conform. So after six or eight weeks, you know what I, cause I still kept exercising. Um, now I was firmly in ketosis and most people never even know that your body has two fuel cycles. You know, one, which is glycolysis, which is carbs and burning stuff in your liver and so on and so forth. And the other is, ketosis where you naturally burn fat. Um, and of course, if you don't burn fat, you're never going to lose weight, right? So you have to yep. put your body, regardless of whatever diet you do, no diet works unless you put your body into ketosis so that it starts. So, so I started thinking about this and I was like, so, you know, my favorite question, just so you know, that I try to ask all the time is like, huh, how does that work? Right? So, because that's a really interesting question. And so then I understood first that how I felt hungry really mattered in what was going on in my body. Okay. 
But now think about it. This is really wild. When was the last time that you went to a doctor and the doctor asked you, how do you feel hungry? Not, are you hungry all the time? How do you feel? Has that ever happened to you? Never. Never, right? But why? Because doctors are in authority-driven, low empathy hierarchies. It never even crosses their mind to ask you how you feel. So that extremely important data point is totally empathy-driven, right? Because if a doctor isn't empathy-driven, and most of them are not, because they're in, you know, they're in, you know, low empathy, power-based power hierarchies, you know, everybody's got to call them doctor, you know, the nurse has to kowtow to them, on and on and on. They would never, it would never even occur to them to ask you, right? And then the idea that you would project onto this lower being, i.e. your patient, some ability you know, so, so the doctors, of course, they're low empathy. They're never going to ask you how you feel. And in right. fact, they're going to be reactive. You know, if you walk in there, you know, and you have high blood pressure, they're going to give you a pill, right? Yep. And then, of course, once you have high blood pressure, you're probably on, you know, the metabolic start, right? It's too late. It's, well, it's not too late. It's never too late, I like to say. But you're already now, you're, you're in the cycle. Okay. Right. And actually you've wrecked your metabolism and it does take time to heal. And, and that's one thing because it's not seen once again, that the medical community does not address. It's like, okay, so you heal your outside, right? You lose weight, but it turns out your metabolism for me took about nine months to heal. Super interesting. Yeah. Super interesting. Cause I'm proof, you know, and the other thing is, is that <clears throat> it's inside your body. So now it really changes your self definition towards yourself. Right. Yep. Which is an empathy thing because you can't have empathy for other people if you have no empathy for yourself. See? So, so then I started understanding that the way we conceptualize the field was just totally wrong. And it's obviously totally wrong. It's not an arrogant thing to say. You can go to Walmart and see how many fat people that you want to see, right? It's yep. appalling. But the other thing is, is that you can go to your local co-op and see how many fat people and unhealthy looking people. And so, you know, the conceptualization of diet is totally messed up. It's, it's all wrong. It doesn't make any difference if you're buying, if you're at the Whole Foods or if you're at the Walmart. Everybody's doing the wrong thing. And the reason yep. that they're doing the wrong thing, and now what happens is that starts changing the way that your brain starts working. So if you, so the biggest thing, the, the most obvious one is sugar. So sugar basically drives the dopamine loop. So you have two primary loops in your, in, in your system. You have, this is a simplification and I know it is. Okay. But the humor me here, you have the I loop, which is the dopamine loop and you have the we loop, which is the serotonin loop. Okay. If you don't have enough serotonin or if your serotonin's messed up, you get depressed. Right. And the dopamine loop is the activation, the egocentric loop. So then that starts feeding into how you perceive things because basically we have an I loop society where everything's dopamine driven, right? Yep. And interestingly enough, alcohol actually affects the serotonin loop and we're constantly wailing against alcohol and it's not like alcohol is completely pro-social and, 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 and good for your health, pro-salutary towards your health either. But I do find it interesting that, you know, 
that people really knock on pubs all the time because that might be the best, you know, one of the, right. not an abuse, but, you know, please, I mean, you know, but once again, it might be one of the things because once again, the value means are trying to recreate the society that they naturally need, which is why COVID's so fascinating because basically all the, the prescriptions that come out of this, this lockdown community is all about social fragmentation. Whereas the only community, the only, the only nation state that's beat this is Sweden. And that's because they basically relied on agency of the people and high trust and responsibility that also link into the empathy thing and doing the right thing and understanding what the right things are. So, so I wrote a piece about what is the long-term, a couple of things real quick. So how does it actually work? How does sugar actually work? And the answer is really interesting. So your body, of course, burns sugar in your muscles. Yep. Right? Everybody knows that. So people have taken the idea of burning sugar in your muscles, okay, and saying, well, that means you should eat sugar. But that's kind of the same. The way your body burns sugar in your muscles is a, with a very carefully um, modulated, titrated, whatever the right word is, um, doled out, exact me metabolized way, right? <clears throat> kind of like your car burns gasoline. So you don't start your car by getting a can of gasoline and dumping it on the engine and setting it on fire. <laughs> right, exactly. You don't do that. So then I started thinking, like, why does your body even burn sugar, right? And the answer, if you ask me, and you are asking me, is that, is that, um, is that basically it's unavailable in the, the world, in the world at large. And so that's really cool from a body's perspective because it takes whatever you eat and turns it into this high value energetic substance. Okay. Yep. But <clears throat> it never has that substance on the outside except guarded by bees yeah. to disturb your natural body's homeostasis. So what happens? What does that mean? Well, so if, do you guys have hay fever at all? Yes. Okay. So what happens to you when you walk into the middle of a field of hay? Oh, I'll start sneezing and eyes run and all that stuff. Right. Okay. So what that means is your body is unable to maintain homeostasis in, in the face of that. I mean, you're a doctor, so you get this, right? So, so the thing is, it's exactly the same with sugar. Um, and the reason that we were able to go like we humans are into all these different environments is was because we developed an energetic mode where we were able to maintain homeostasis across all these environments. We could eat all this different stuff and you can have lots of different healthy diets, even vegetarian ones, um, as long as you get enough saturated fat and, um, you know, you'd be fine. So, so at any rate, so sugar itself. So then, you know, I'm sitting there going, what would be the larger psychosocial implications of a society hooked on sugar? <clears throat> because now we understand it as coming out of this authoritarian value meme, which is now becoming the social organization. And then you start seeing all sorts of bad stuff happen. We're basically, you're basically predisposing people to more and more impulsive behavior. Um, and people love to talk about social media. And one of the reasons they love to talk about social media is because social media actually also connects people. It's not that social media doesn't have problems because it does. It does. Absolutely, it does. But, but they never focus on sugar. But if you think about it, it's like this is incredibly disruptive. And the other thing that it does is basically it's causing Alzheimer's in our old people. And, you know, so 
Fury Tobbs talked about this, you know, and if you Google like type three diabetes, then that's the other term that they're using for, for, um, for Alzheimer's. And why does that matter? Well, your old people are the ones who you are counting on being wise. Yep. And now all of a sudden you're taking these people and you're giving them two things, sugar and Fox news. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yep. And you're denying your society, this larger collective thing of this wisdom, you know, even if that wisdom is grandpa telling the teenager, you know, you know, stuff your wally back in your pants and don't chase that girl, you know, or whatever, you know, I mean, you need those larger psychosocial dampers inside your system. But then when you start jump, you start building this fragmentation, you start to get to this point where you see runaway, you see runaway mimetic behavior. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, why would anybody fight over wearing a fucking mask? Yeah. I can give you the what? You told them to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, look, and I can tell you all the things that are wrong with masks. And in fact, I kind of just did. I said it has to be a timed intervention, has to make sense. You know, there's this whole continental ecosystem thing I talk about, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? Put on a mask. It's not that big a deal. It makes grandma happy for six months, whatever. But yeah, exactly. You see this, right? Because basically now you have this, this problem. You're starting to see a society that has this larger mimetic problem that's also driven by diet that actually, once again, couples back to the time scales and the level of empathetic fragmentation that actually exists. So you start seeing these larger deep code reinforcing loops. And Super that, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really scary. That was a big discovery and I figured that out, but then it made me really scared and then I had to walk around a little bit. If you start realizing, you know, once again, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I know I'm in the simulation too, but I'm like, I know I'm in the simulation. Right. And so, so then, then, you know, it's like, so it's really interesting. So I switched doctors and um, now I go to a seventh day Adventist doctor who is interesting because of course I'm a meteor, I'm a keto guy. Right. But um, they're very, and I don't know if you remember this, but they're total vegetarians. Right that they put up with me because they also have an interest in, in being at least pro health. So the, the value means line up a little better. That's very cool. Yeah. Glenn, so, wanted, Glenn wanted to know about the simulation thing. Um, talk about just the simulation thing. Glenn, do you well, want, if you got anything you want to add to that, that you want to yeah, add? Well, I mean, you know, basically what I like to say is we're in the matrix, right? And, yeah, and you and, mentioned and, that a lot. And yeah. I was wondering like what level, like how literally do you mean this? Uh, I think we're kind of in the matrix. I don't think we're human batteries, but I think we're in the matrix. And the reason that we're in the matrix is actually really, it's a great question, but I have a reason for it. Okay. So I do believe that, you know, we're a product of evolution. Okay. And I'm assuming you wouldn't be talking to me if you didn't. We'd be eating sugar, watching Fox News. Yeah, that's right. And eating eating a popsicle or something. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So um so so um evolution is a really interesting thing. In that evolution naturally produces, you know, I did write a post about this just very recently. Okay, so so one of their evolution does a couple of things. One is it, it produces emergent behavior 
because automatic behavior, especially at the levels that we've been with the rates of change that we see, have seen in geologic time makes a lot of sense. The last thing you want is people thinking for themselves or dinosaurs thinking for themselves, you know? And so, 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 or dimetrodons or, you know, pick your, you know, pick your creature from the past, you know, like Euryptids I was writing about the other day, these like sea scorpion things, you know, back at the beginning of time, right? You know, so the thing is, the last thing you want them to do is think for themselves, because if they think for themselves, their reactive speeds are too slow to not get eaten. Right? I mean, and that's just one example, okay? But, you know, I don't know about you, Glenn, but I don't want to think about how my stomach works. I just want to work, okay? So, and if you had to think about your stomach working, what would happen if you didn't think? Well, then your stomach wouldn't work, right? And then you'd die. And so evolution would not favor that over time, right? So emergence and a lack of awareness is built into genetic evolution. And it works great because as long as the surrounding environment is not changing rapidly, it's all good, okay? In fact, it's the way to fly. But what we're seeing now is, of course, things are changing extremely fast. We're basically, we're basically wiring the world. We're wiring the world brain. And we're finding out that parts of the world brain are not as smart as we wish it was. And some of that parts of the world brain that we're wiring are right here, and they're not as smart as we thought they were, okay? <clears throat> the other thing that drives evolution is inter-agent coordination. And this is very, very interesting idea, and people basically don't get this, because this is the empathy thing, that all the really smart things communicate across each other in a species. So wolves, dolphins, you know, and, and, and all these genetic elements gain enormous traction throughout the years or throughout the eons, whatever, geological time, once again, by evolving coordination, okay? And so it's, it's interagent organization that drives the development of sentience and thinking, okay? So <clears throat> now all of a sudden, this is an idea that to me is really obvious. And I came up with it, but I'm never going to get any credit for it because now all of a sudden I'm telling every authority in the world that they're just an asshole, right? You're not independently smart. And I'll be the first one to admit I'm not independently smart. I mean, I'd have some good ideas, but you know, I'm not, I mean, I have to go out and reference and so on and so forth. So you've set up an entire system of knowledge generation where you can't tell people that it's not them doesn't work, right? So, so we're in the matrix, and then you also start realizing that the authority-driven knowledge network has a profound interest in you not being enlightened. Because if you're enlightened, then you're not going to think for yourself. If you're not enlightened, you're not going to think for yourself, and then you're going to listen to the authority. And then the authority is going to tell you what to do. And that's going to reinforce the value meaning that they're creating. So it's all self-reinforcing. Self and when you have a self-reinforcing system in a stasis, it turns out to be very, very tough to beat. It turns out almost impossible to break. 
And, and so, you know, the matrix has, it, it's, it's not that everything that comes out of universities is wrong. I don't want that impression, but we have major flaws in the way that we create information. And, you know, they're not solving problems. Yep. I think that's an interesting expression of the, um, it's like a, almost a counter to the idea of modernism where, oh no, everything is completely explicit. Everyone's like, we've come up with all the ideas, now everything's fake. Instead, it's further than that. There are these ideas which are emergent in our society due to mimetics, as you were saying. And, but it's not towards a postmodernist direction where um, literal reality doesn't exist. So we're not literally actually in a simulation created by digits, maybe. Um, but instead, when you say, uh, when you're referencing the simulation of the matrix, you're saying more um, rules of mimetics and how our societies are like constructing themselves are driving us in ways that we can't see due to the emergent properties of our V memes. We of, haven't looked. We haven't looked. Yeah, we haven't looked. And we don't even want to look because they typically tend to erode the power of authorities. And authorities, for the most part, are how we have set up our society to know stuff. And you might call those social hierarchies, or yeah. a, but authorities is social hierarchies. They they degrade the the ability of social hierarchies to run things. So we don't look, you know. And so I managed to look around because I'm this, you know, odd guy in the middle of nowhere. I'm on Tatooine you know, who's led this very interesting, but, um, you know, somewhat traumatic life. I mean, like my parents were both crazy. I write about it on my blog. It's not really a secret. Um, so yeah, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that that's gone on in my life that, that has made me who I am as well as the fact that I happen to run this design clinic where I work with a hundred different companies. I mean, there's all these weird things. There's this confluence of stuff that has given me the, the perspective that I do. And my thing is, is that you can actually know the rules of the simulation because, you know, but, but then it's all sorts of cool stuff. Once you accept that sentience is sentience is sentience, you know, and that, that it's the result of interagent coordination. It's like when somebody tells me my dog doesn't love me, I say, fuck you, man. You don't even know, you know, you're not. I think I've actually written that in one of my ethics papers last semester. And <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, I think. About, think about why that person did that because they're, actually backing up their mimetic structure, which says that, you know, there's a hierarchy of animals and, you know, you can't connect to these lower animals. And in fact, you can't trust yourself whether your dog loves you or not. Yeah. That's what they're saying, right? And, and who's going to get to be the reference that your dog loves you? They are. So they're trying to destroy your agency by making you write that paper. That's why you got to tell them to go fuck themselves. Okay, you guys say, my dog loves me. I love it. I love yeah. it. And so the thing is, is that once you start realizing this and you start understanding lots of the way that, you know, that now look, there are other things that drive evolution. You know, there's like, a, you know, you have to have some need to, or you have to have some space to fit into whatever the environmental niche is. I mean, there's never a simple one thing, you know, but um, you know, there's like this one guy in Costa Rica I wrote about, he like has a crocodile as a pet. Yeah. 
And he goes out there and he pets the crocodile and the crocodile and him hang out on the bank together. And the crocodile never acts like it wants to eat him. Right now, that's a little dicey because, you know, there's a lot of shit going on in that crocodile's mind, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but the, you can't really know because there is a gap. There is an interspecies, you know, um, empathy gap that exists between you and the crocodile. But then you start understanding that basically um, empathy turns into a computational problem where you know it's like if you take a, a computer and this is far before you guys time if you take a computer that's back um you know 30 years ago or 35 years ago that has like an 8080 microprocessor which your dad might remember but you won't and then you try to hook it then you have bandwidth limitations right because it has only so many megaflops it can turn over and the thing that i'm scared about is i'm sitting around scratching my head going i wonder if our you know if we really have the the mega flops up in this thing to connect enough to share enough information so we don't destroy the planet. And I'm, I guess I'm betting that we do, but I, I can't say that I'm completely sure because we're all hardware limited at some point. right? I think a good way to put that is what is the bit rate of the wiggling air that's turning into wiggling electrons that's letting me talk to you right now? Like we're reading each other's minds, but like what's the <laughs> bit rate there? Yeah, well, but people do talk about that, and that's like a lower, you know, one of my favorite things is the, the, the and once again, this is before your time, um, was the OSI network model, because it broke up the different levels uh, on the, the network stack for, for how the internet was laid out, and, you know, understanding the, what was it called, the, there's the physical layer, and then there's the, the data rate layer, I can't remember the names, and then there's the bottom level network letter, and then transport and on and on up until you know the top conceptual layers and we have those same layers in our brains i mean it's a really good conceptualization of how we communicate so you'll see stuff where people will talk about things like shannon rates <clears throat> and shannon rates are important i mean you know but it's just that one it's it's the data link layer you know but the other stuff is what i talk about which is the complexity and then you're like okay well you have complexity stuff but you know, getting back to your stuff, can you communicate enough of that data over time to make, you know, to solve the problems in the world? I hope so. Super cool. Well, Chuck, okay. the, 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 I think that wraps it up perfectly. Thank you so much for getting on the horn today. This has been super informative and, and we've learned a ton. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.